This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to another episode of Press One for Nick. Your host, Nick Limsdahl, is the Director of Contact Center Solutions at VDS. Through conversations with customer service and customer experience leaders, Nick and his guests exchange insightful stories, best practices, and invaluable lessons they have learned along the way. Welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. My name is Nick Limsdahl, and my guest this week is Alex Hutchinson. He is a National Magazine award-winning journalist, a contributing editor outside, a columnist at The Globe and Mail, and a senior editor at Canadian Running. On this episode, we'll be talking about his latest book, Endure, Mind, Body, and Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance, which I've read, and I have so many questions, which I'm glad that he is on the podcast. So, Alex, welcome to the Press One for Nick podcast. Thanks a lot, Nick. I appreciate the invitation. You bet. So the first question I have for every single guest at the very beginning is, what's one thing people might not know about you? Well, it, depends, it kind of depends how, how, how deep we want to go, right? I'm thinking like, <laughs> huh, they may not know anything about me. So, uh, you know, um, but I think the first level thing is is that even though I'm I'm a journalist and I write about sports, I have a PhD in physics. That's my background. I, I started out as a physicist and that is, I think it really, infor- it, it both, it informs my view of the world. Uh, I don't know if studying physics made me this way or just I was this way, so I studied physics, but I'm really interested in in the evidence and seeing things from a rational perspective. Understanding is not the only way of knowing things. Like intuition matters and stuff too. But but my professional approach is show me the evidence. And so and if you to understand that, it's like why is he like this? Well, I spent ten years as a physicist. <laughs> it it explains a lot. Now that I know you're a physicist and I've read the book, and uh, for my listeners, you don't have to be a runner which you'll understand here by the end of this episode, that you'll get a lot out of this conversation, uh, which is in by the book is Endure Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It's not just about running. It's about the human performance. It's, It's how far can you push your body? And then how will your body adapt to the circumstance that it's in? Over, over a short period of time or over a long period of time, and then um, potentially how that correlates to to other things. Um, you know, there's, uh, I have already a list of, of questions that I'm, I'm ready to ask you, and I'm sure we're going to go off the rails a little bit, which is fine. But first off, I just want to say that it's a well-written book. It blends Thanks. a lot of it. And I think we talked about this pre-recording, but it blends a lot of the conversations that, you know, every, every runner needs to run once or needs to read once a runner. Like that's just non-negotiable. It should be, all right, here's as a freshman in college, here's your, here's your books and here's your once a runner book. Um, and then, you know, there's other ones that talk about the human performance or even the performance of other, uh, athletes, which are potential, which are animals. And the book that we talked about and you help me remember is, is why we run another great book. But I think this kind of is a great blend of, of so many other books and you just go way deeper into other sports, not just about running and then how that correlates to, to the focus and uh, brain activity and endurance and competition. And I really want to get into it. So I'll just stop talking after this question. And we'll just uh, let the expert uh, share a little bit about the book. So the first question I have for you, Alex, is 
and and everybody will probably want to know and everybody's got an opinion but it, from your perspective is running more mental or physical yeah, yeah well it, i'm glad you didn't even i didn't ask for like a specific percentage but i actually wrote um let me let me answer this a long way i, I wrote an article a couple couple weeks ago about a study on cycling actually but you know similar stuff cycling up a mountain it was a study and they they determined that cycling up a mountain was 70% physical and 23% mental. Now, that's kind of tongue in cheek, right? Like it's obviously there's no specific number, but what I mean, the way they did it in that particular study was they took a bunch of cyclists and they took them to the lab and did a bunch of measurements they wanted to measure. What's their what's your aerobic fitness? What's your VO2 max? What's your maximum strength? And then they also gave them a bunch of psychological questionnaires to determine things like persistence, perseverance, achievement orientation, like a, a whole battery of standard psychological questionnaires. Then they, then they had them race up a mountain and they took the times and said, and said, okay, what are the factors that were best at predicting who was going to be fastest up the mountain? Is it just like, if you know someone's VO2 max, that's how fast they're going to be. And that's all that matters. Or do you have to add in other physical things or do these mental things to like how you answer a questionnaire about your approach to problems and perseverance? Do they actually uh, have a, a, you know, a powerful effect in predicting how fast you race independent of your, your physical side. And so the number they came up with this in this particular study with these particular athletes was 77% phys uh, physical and 23% mental and 23% is huge, right? Like that's, a, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. And so this precise numbers you would get will always depend on who you're talking about. Like, are you comparing 10 Olympic athletes or 10 random people off the street? And what is exactly the the uh the the task is it a, is it a 10 hour ultra marathon or is it the 100 meter dash like there's there's lots of different parameters but the point is that there it's not 100 and zero and so you know like going back to what i said yeah you know, the first thing you asked me is like something that people won't know about me and i said i'm a physicist and so and i'm a sort of hard-nosed kind of empirical guy and so for me the starting point when i was a competitive athlete back in my college days is, was the assumption that it's all physical, that it's like, I need to get in shape. I need to get my muscles, uh, you know, my heart, my lungs, all that stuff, that that's what matters. And, and over the course of, let's say the last 10 years as a science journalist, trying to understand the, the, the limits of performance, it's been a journey for me to say, ah, these, these squishier things that are harder to measure, these th th things about mindset, about, uh, you know, personality, about, uh, mental approach, they actually have a measurable effect. So yeah, that uh, the, I'm rambling here, but the, the, the answer I can give you is that the contribution of mind is, is not zero, even in something that seems like it's purely physical, like how fast can you run up a mountain or whatever? Yeah, I, I think it's so interesting. So I'm going to give you a, an impossible question to answer potentially, but if you had all of these amazing athletes and you didn't know their name, you didn't know and they're all all elite, right? And you didn't know their name. You didn't know what time they ran. You didn't know the location that they're from. And it was more the mental questions. What questions would you ask them to pick the team to compete against the world, let's say? Oh, that's a great question. I think one of the first things, one of the questions I would ask would be, tell me what goes through your mind halfway through a race. What is the, what is the inner monologue that you hear and we all have an inner monologue. I mean, they've done study on this, studies on this where like 95% of people report that they have 
a, a dialogue with themselves during challenging tasks like exercise. And the other 5% of people are probably lying or else just not understanding the question or something. It's like, we're, we're all, that, that's the nature of any sustained demanding task is it's a, it's a protracted negotiation. You, you want to slow down, you want to stop, you want to take a break. And you're having to convince yourself at any moment, at every, at every moment throughout this process, whether it's a race or, or, you know, whether it's studying for an exam all night or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, you're having to convince yourself to keep going. So I want to know, what do you think when things get tough? And the truth is most of us have pretty negative, uh, inner monologues and that's, that's natural. Like it's when things are hard, it's natural to think I want to stop, <laughs> you know, this sucks. Why did I sign up for this marathon? That's, that's natural, but some people are much more negative than others. And one of the hallmarks, I think, or there's, you know, it's, there's not a lot of research in this area, but successful athletes, successful performers across uh, domains tend to be able to not dwell on the negative, not be super pessimistic, not convince themselves they're going to fail, but find reasons to keep going and to keep pushing. So that would be one good diagnostic for me. Yeah. What are you thinking? When the going gets tough, are you crapping all over yourself or are you finding ways to keep pushing? Yeah. I'm I'm so glad I asked that because I think it, it is important the to answer because you're in the middle of this race and you are beyond already very uncomfortable. And if you're going to compete for your personal record, whatever that personal record might be, um, so how, how does an athlete, um, change that self-talk from positive or from negative to positive? And what happens in that moment when you start believing in yourself and you give yourself that positive reinforcement instead of the negative? Yeah, this is a big question and an interesting one. So let me just talk in terms of running. I think it's generalizable beyond that, but it's, a, it's an easy like test example to, to say you're running a marathon, you're halfway through. And you're starting to fall off pace. Let's say you, or you're, you know, let's say you're, let, let's say you're racing against your, your rival and your rival is starting to pull ahead of you. And you're like, uh, a gap is opening up. Why is it that that gap is opening up? Is it because you literally cannot run fast enough to keep up with your rival? No, because you're, if you're halfway through a marathon, you've, you've got enough energy to keep going for a long time and he's going, he or she is going a tiny amount faster than you. So, this gap that seems insurmountable as it opens up, it's fundamentally, it's a decision. You're deciding that the effort that would be required, because if a lion jumped out from behind a tree at that moment and started chasing you, you would sprint. You would find, like at that point, you still have the energy to go pretty fast. You're choosing not to go that fast because you're relying on your subjective perception of how hard you're working. And you're saying at this point, halfway through a marathon, I still have 13 miles to go. It should feel hard, but it can't feel super hard. Otherwise, there's no way I'm making it to the finish line. So we're, we're making our decisions not on the basis of like, my legs can't go any faster. It's based on this feels hard, a certain degree of hard, and it's harder than I think it should feel at this point. And the, the reason I'm sort of belaboring this point is that I think this is a general uh, principle that we, we make our decisions not on the basis of sort of our bo my body made me do it. My legs made me do it, my, but on this subjective sense of effort. Effort is the master switch, our subjective con conception of how hard it feels. So the, now the connection to self-talk is that your subjective perception of effort is suggestible. 
if you're telling yourself, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I, this is so, so hard. I can't believe how hard this is. You're putting your thumb on the scale so that it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It is feeling a little harder than you, then you, if you, if you then stopped asking yourself, how hard am I working on a scale of one to 10? If you're telling yourself this is super, super hard, you're more likely to say it's like eight out of 10 rather than seven out of 10 or, or eight rather than seven and a half. You know, it may be a subtle difference, but it's enough that's going to affect your performance. And so this is what, you know, to go back again to this idea of like, it, it's all, you know, to what extent is it in your head? This is what convinced me to go from a like, oh, it's a hundred percent physical to, to, oh no, there is a role for the mental is that people have now done studies on this idea of self-talk and trying to investigate how it affects not just performance, but, but figure out why it affects performance. And the re so they can do studies showing that if you're given a little bit of training on changing negative self-talk to positive self-talk, it alters. And then you go and do the same physical challenge, let's say sitting on an exercise bike and biking at 200 Watts or whatever, you'll, it will, you will rate it as easier. You'll say, yeah, this is six out of 10. Whereas before you were saying it was seven out of 10 and all you've done is change the words in your head. Now, to, so to answer your actual question, which is how do we do that? How do we change the words? It's actually, there's no rocket science to it. And I think it's still a, a kind of emerging area, but it's like step one is become aware of what you do say to yourself. So doing what, when you're doing something hard, whether it's, you know, you're about to step up and give a presentation to someone or you're running a marathon or whatever the case may be, Stop and, and tap into that internal monologue and, and better yet, you know, write it, jot down. What are the three thoughts that I'm, that I'm thinking right now? Become aware of the, because everyone's, this is a very individual, right? It's not like there's three bad thoughts that everyone thinks. And instead, everyone should be thinking these three good thoughts. We all have different weaknesses. We all have different strengths. We all are vulnerable to different kinds of negative thoughts. Figure out what it is that worries you or that, that drags you down. And figure out ways of reframing those that are more positive and then practice, like get in that situation. And it has to, in order to, to have positive self-talk in a high stress situation, you don't have time to like, or, or you don't have the bandwidth to just decide to do that, uh, you know, in the moment. You have to have practiced it so that it becomes second nature. So that you know, when I hit halfway in the marathon, I think... I've trained for this. I know I can do it or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and similarly, whatever other cues that may be like going and and giving a talk, you know, just before you step to the podium or, or something like that. Now there's lots of nuances. There's lots of like details that are still being worked out about. Like, for example, there's a research on first person versus second or third person self-talk. So if you say to yourself, I can do this, this is hard, but I can do this versus this is hard, but you can do this or Alex, you can do this. There's actually research. There's a whole bunch of research suggesting that second or third person, so you can do this or Alex can do this, is more effective than first person self-talk where it's I can do this. Um, And the thought is that when you're in a challenging situation, switching to second person or third person creates a a, a sort of self-distancing. You're it's like you're giving advice to a friend as opposed to being, so when you're ch- facing a, a big challenge that seems overwhelming, if you're able to step outside your, your, that, that feeling for a moment and say, you can do this, you're, you're, you're all right, you, you've done the preparations for this, it's ch- challenging, but you can do it, that, that helps a little bit. So, so subtle changes, subtle wording changes like that can make a difference. There's also a question of like, 
is it more important to avoid negative self-talk or do you have to have really happy, positive self-talk? Like, is it enough just to not say, Alex, you're an idiot, you're going to be a failure? Or do you also have to say, Alex, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. Like, do you have to have the positive mantras? And there's one study that I I, I actually just wrote about uh, quite recently, um, which suggests that it's more important to avoid the negative self-talk, that you don't necessarily have to be a big cheerleader for yourself, that it's the negative self-talk that that kind of causes people to freeze up, to, to it causes their breathing rate to increase, uh, spikes their stress levels. And if you can avoid the negative self-talk, so, because it's not everyone's comfortable like saying with, with super, uh, you know, motivational, positive self-talk. So it, it depends from person to person. You have to find what works for you, but if you can root out, uh, kind of refuse to get into those cycles of negativity, that's, that's probably the most important first step. Yeah. This is so fascinating because you talk to yourself more than anybody else talks to you outside of running or just life. And so what is that conversation like? And is it, would you provide that same advice to somebody who is not you? And if the answer is no, then why do you provide it to yourself? It's that, I think you talked about, it's the perceived exertion of uh, fatigue, the inability to continue versus that sense of effort. It's, it's continuing to say, it's the controllables versus the uncontrollables too. Like if I'm in the middle of a race right before the race, I'm like, man, it is 98 degrees. It is still, and this is a stiff competition instead of saying, you know what? It's hot for everybody. And my controllable is how I talk to myself. I've already done the work and let's just go out and have fun. And the, what you said about giving advice to a friend is so, so important. Like I, I see that. So my, my wife and I are both, you know, former runners and, and we can give each, we can see, we can always see what the other person is doing wrong. It's so clear and so obvious. And, and each of us, we kind of know when we're making a mistake, like we should be taking a break and we're still running or whatever, you know, trying to push through an injury. It's very hard to see in yourself these, you know, we're, we're good at, at tricking ourselves into, uh, sometimes into bad decisions. And so, you know, if you, Ian, if you switch to that second person perspective, what would you say if your friend told you that he was going to do this and you're like, well, I'd say my friend's an idiot. Well, then don't do it. <laughs> don't do what you're doing. Like you have to be able to see what you, what you were saying to a friend. I think it, that's a really a good way of thinking about it or of, of just like a shortcut to what should I be thinking? Well, what would I, what would I say if a friend laid out these facts in front of me and what advice would I give? In a competitive market, does your customer service stand out from the crowd? One way to offer a better experience is by moving your contact center to the cloud. But with so many options to choose from, how do you know which solution is the best for both your business and your customers? That's where VDS comes in and guides you to the best solution. They understand your client's pain points, business outcomes, and goals. Then VDS designs, implements, supports, and provides 24-7 managed services. From start to finish, VDS is committed to finding the best solutions for your clients' needs. To learn more, go to www.govds.com or find a link in the show notes. Yeah, I want to get your thoughts on on the on the power of visualization um, when it comes to running. Did did you or do you visualize your race prior? You know, everybody kind of. In high school or college, you kind of run the course or walk the course and say, this is where I want to do this and this is where I want to do that. But 
if you've already been to the course before, or if you've never been to the course and you kind of see the course map, have you or completed visualization prior to a race? And if yes, um, what's the importance of that? Yeah. So, you know, first answer is absolutely. I've, I spent probably too much time visualizing, you know, lying in bed the night before visualizing every moment of the race. Um, I think it's effective. I, I will make a distinction and then going right back to the, what I said at the beginning about I'm a kind of like show me the evidence guy. Self-talk, the reason I've, I've, I've been converted into a believer in self-talk is that people have done some really good peer reviewed, you know, blinded controlled studies showing that self-talk works and showing how it works. Visualization is super hard to study. It's hard to like, you can't have 20 people and have them all visualize exactly the same thing. I think visualization is important. I think it works, but it's much harder to study. We're much more into the realm of like, coaching advice rather than science. So I just want to make that point that, that to me, there's a distinction between what the science shows and, and what athletes and coaches are confident of. So I absolutely visualize. There's a couple of points to make about visualization. Um, one is most of us, I think rightly focus on visualizing everything goes right, everything going right. Like here's what it will be like when I execute my plan to perfection. And here's what my plan. There are other schools of thought and there's a great book uh, called The Genius of Athletes by Noel Brick and Scott Douglas, which is basically a, a, a sports psychology applied to everyday life. And, and, and they make the point in terms of visualization that, you know, Michael Phelps apparently used to visualize everything going wrong. So he would lie in bed or whatever and visualize swimming at the Olympics in his goggles coming off and having to swim blind for the last lap and counting the strokes so that he could turn, you know, make the turn perfectly and, and do the touch even while unable to see, which is like conventionally a, a lot of sports psychologists would say, that's don't visual, you know, what you visualize is what you're going to, you know, make come true. And it's going to be so to visualize the good stuff. Don't visualize failure. Phelps visualized things going wrong. And sure enough at the Olympics, I can't remember which Olympics might've been 2008 or something. His goggles came off partway through a race and he had to swim just blind based on stroke count. And he won the, the race by a fraction of a second. And, and so there, I guess the message is that like, sometimes it could be helpful to visualize how am I going to handle different scenarios? How am I going to handle if this goes wrong or if that goes wrong? Um, the other thing to, to bear in mind, which I think, you know, probably was relevant to me is, Visualization can get you psyched up. It can help you, you know, get ready for that moment. It can keep you motivated because you're imagining what's going to happen. It, but it can also be, be kind of like spinning the tires a little too much. And so I know for me, I, I tended to get pretty nervous before races. And there's a point at which I probably would have been better off. Like, you know what? Don't visualize the race for the 30th time at 2 a.m. and, you know, the night before the race. Read a book, get some sleep, watch TV or whatever. Um, and so you have to kind of be, uh, conscious of your personal needs of some people need to be psyched up. So they need to be motivated. They need to be fired up. Other people need to be like calmed down and relaxed. And some of, you know, I'd say there, I've been, there've been times in my life when I needed to be psyched up and there've been times in my life when I needed to be calmed down. And you kind of have to st try and be sensitive to that and, and ask yourself, when is it helpful for me to visualize? When is it helpful for me, me to get into that zone? When is it helpful for me to just turn it off and, you know, except that I've done the work already and that the die is cast, the hay is in the barn, all the other cliches, and I'm not going to 
uh, kind of keep, keep spinning the wheels excessively. Yeah, this is, uh, this is fascinating. Um, I can continue on that, on that journey for another seven podcasts, but we're, we're going to cut it there on the, on that specific question. Uh, you know, when it comes to, when, when it comes to breathing or let's be more specific when it comes to oxygen, how does, what role does that play when it comes to the endurance of, of the athlete? Oxygen's a kind of great example for how to think about human limits because it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's hard to think of something that seems like a more obvious, like physical limitation. You need oxygen for your muscle metabolism. If you don't get oxygen, you, you know, within a, a few minutes, you, you basically die. And so for, in the context of running, you know, my sport and your sport, you start running, you start breathing hard. It's like the first signal that you're working hard is that you're panning. You can't feel like you can't get enough oxygen. So when I was researching Endure, I was like, I want to really understand the nature of the limitations imposed by oxygen. And, and that led me down a lot of different paths, you know, like high altitude mountaineers, but also free divers. And you know, I, it was a shock to me. Um, I would, I would invite listeners before I say this to, to answer this question for yourselves. What is the human record for breath holding? Not like magicians, uh, you know, if you inhale pure oxygen before you hold your breath, then you can hold your breath for a long time. But if you're just like, you're walking down the street, someone says, Hey, if you can hold your breath for longer than X, uh, I'll pay you a million bucks. Well, the human record for that is 11 minutes and 40 se 35 seconds. I think it is 11 minutes, 35 seconds. And th that is just astounding. It is astonishing. And it's really interesting to, to talk to the people who set these, who are, you know, world-class breath holders who are almost without exception, they're, they're free divers. They, they, what they, what they really like to do is dive to the bottom of the ocean with no air tank, but they can also just put their face in a pool and, and hold their breath. And they describe the sort of stages of, you know, it's hard, it gets harder. And then it gets super hard. They go, they go through what they call the struggle phase when their, uh, their breathing muscles are involuntarily contracting, trying to force them to breathe because their body has decided or their brain has decided like, this guy's nuts. He, we're going to die if we don't breathe. So we're going to override what he wants to do. They're, so they're trying to force you to breathe. And if you, but if you just suppress that, you just let the mu muscles contract, but don't open your mouth. Then after that, it's just kind of like, it doesn't get easy, but it's, it's no longer the, the, the contractions stop and you're just sitting there holding your breath. Um, and, and the, the moral of the story, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that we have a whole bunch of like alarm systems, uh, wired into the body to warn, to warn us if we're getting low on oxygen. And those alarm systems are loud and they are uncomfortable. But they don't, when they go off, it does not mean that we're actually out of oxygen. When you start panting and breathing heavily, you're not out of oxygen. You, you go through that and you get to the struggle phase, your, your breathing muscles are contracting. You're actually still not out of oxygen. One guy, I talked to the American record holder for breath holding. It's like eight minutes, 35 seconds. And he, he said his struggle phase started around four minutes. Uh, that's, that's when things like his body thought he was out of oxygen. His record's eight minutes and 35 seconds. There's a big difference between when the alarm goes off and when, and even at eight minutes, 35 seconds, he didn't drown or anything. That's when they, his coach thought that's about how much he should go. His coach pulled him out of the water because at that point he probably could have kept holding his breath until he passed out and passing out is not a good thing underwater. Um, so that, that is actually true of most of the things we think about, whether it's heat or cold or, or, you know, lactic acid or whatever the case may be. 
what we feel is a warning signal. We don't feel our actual physical limits. And that doesn't mean we can necessarily ignore these warning signals at all times, but what it means is that they're more negotiable than you might think. And that if you learn to kind of, I mean, this happens when to anyone who, let's say, decides they want to run a 5K and go, goes from out of shape to, to running a 5K over the course of a few months or, or six months or whatever. The body gets fitter. They, you know, their, their muscles get fitter, their heart gets stronger, but they also just learn to tolerate that discomfort for a little longer. The, the first time you get up from the couch and go for a run, you know, your legs are burning and you're panting after, uh, you know, uh, you know, 30 seconds. You get fitter, but you also learn to learn that it's okay to be panting. It's okay to have your legs hurting a little bit. You can, you can ignore that for a while, not forever, but for a while. And so I think that's just kind of a really important universal lesson about, uh, human performance and human limits is that it's like, it's okay to be uncomfortable because the uncomfort, discomfort is a warning signal, but it doesn't signify that you're at, you've actually hit your limits and you can probably push a little farther. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting when it comes to running or any, any times that you you push your body to, what you perceive as the limit that's when the work starts that's when you start realizing it's either the mind game and you're saying i got this um i'm gonna i'm gonna go one more lap or i'm gonna push for another three minutes and, and see how it goes and that's where you start making those those improvements because then you finish and you're exhausted and you you're daisy and you get that tunnel vision uh, regardless if it's a race or if it's a up-tempo run or if it's a long run. But then you learn from it and you're like, you know what? Yeah, that sucked. And that was painful. But I'm going to do it again and I'm going to do it better because I, I know I can. There's an interesting phenomenon, which is I defy you to find me a runner who, who's finished their career, let's say, and get them to say, yeah, I ran as fast as I possibly could. What my fastest time that's how fast my body could go. Now, every time anyone sets personal best, they're like, yeah, that was okay. And I think I can do a little bit better. And I think, and that happens in training too. As soon as you've done something, you know, you can do that thing. And once you can do that thing, you're like, and I can go one second faster and I can hold on for one second longer. I mean, I think this happens on the, on the human scale too. There's a really interesting parallel between world records in humans and world records in horse racing and dog racing. Um, there's actually probably more money in horse racing and dog racing than there is in human racing because of the betting. So whatever like training insights or technology or nutrition or, you know, whatever it takes to go faster, horses and dogs are getting just everything that humans are getting. So we should all be developing at the same rate. But the truth is that horse records and dog records started to plateau around the 1950s. Um, you know, like the Kentucky Derby record is still secretariat from 1971 or so, like early 70s, I think it is. Um, no, nope. Horses aren't getting faster anymore. Now you look at human world records, they've continued to get faster basically without, without stop. And every, every time we get to the Olympics, there will be a newspaper article saying, is this the end of world records? Have humans gone as fast as they could go? And there were a bunch of those articles in like 2008, right before Usain Bolt, brought the hundred meter world record down by like one and a half percent. There's so we just keep getting faster. And so what's the difference between horses and humans? It's not okay. Humans have been taking drugs, but let me tell you, horses and dogs are taking drugs too. Um, so that, that's not the difference. The difference is that humans can compare themselves to other humans outside of the race for a horse. The only thing that they're racing against is, is the other horses in that race. So if a horse today is racing, they may be fast, but if they don't have secretariat breathing down their neck, 
they, they're not necessarily going to beat Secretariat because they're winning the race and that's all there is to it. Humans are comparing themselves not just to that race, but they know how fast they ran last time thanks to their Garmin Strava and all that. And they know how fast other humans have run. So as soon as one human runs a time, there's other human, the best humans of five years later are like, well, so-and-so ran that time. I bet I can run a couple seconds faster. So I, I mean, I think that the, the divergence of world records, the fact that horses and dogs have plateaued and humans haven't is another kind of indirect piece of evidence that the limits we're fighting against, you know, when we, once we, once we've, you know, gotten past the basic fitness uh, requirements, we're, we're fighting against mental limits to some extent. Yeah. For the, for the people who are not runners and don't understand the craziness of the sport, um, and, and the joys of it for that matter. And the reason why we're talking on a customer service and customer experience podcast is because it's not, this correlates the mind body and the curiously elastic limits of human performance is not just about running. It's about life. It's about the human performance of everything. It's about that self-talk is not just about running around a track and going left a bunch of times. It's about the self-talk and the performance and those micro moments in every race and the decision that you need to make. Am I either going to go around that person and get more uncomfortable or I'm going to sit back behind this person's shoulder and see what they're going to do next? Um, you know, it's, it's the perceived effort versus the continued effort in customer service. It is, it's not just about, you know, when it comes to customer service, it's, it's solving the problem in the channel of, of a customer's choice in the least amount of effort. Well, what is effort? What, and what's their perceived effort? Because their perceived effort is their reality. And I think the same is true in running. Somebody's perceived effort is their, is their reality. And how do I continue to find ways to reframe or refocus in those moments? to reach the goals that I'm trying to reach in that could potentially be in your full-time job. It could be in your side gigs that you're doing. And it could just be something that you're trying to volunteer for or help the kids out or help, help the spouse out. There's a lot, there's a lot to this conversation. I think, so first of all, the, the idea that effort is reality is, is I think really important that whether it's your effort or your customer's effort, uh, just a, a sort of nugget that I found really interesting in my research, you know, the stuff that I've been talking about here is falls under the, the, the rubric of, of exercise physiology. So exercise physiology is a relatively young discipline. It's about a century old. And it started in, in America, at least the, the origins of exercise physiology. The first real research into it was a, a really famous lab called the Harvard fatigue lab, which basically was the world leader, or at least among the world leaders for the first half of the 20th century. And it's really telling that the Harvard Fatigue Lab, when it was set up, it was set up in the basement of the Harvard Business Business School. To them, this was an outgrowth of the st of, of Harvard Business School. Studying the limits of, of the physical limits of human performance was trying to, it was, it was what they called industrial hygiene, uh, which was basically, they were trying to understand how to improve productivity. How could workers produce more? How could people learn to push themselves? And they were doing that by studying world record runners, the, like the Boston Marathon. They would bring the champion from the Boston Marathon in and have him do treadmill tests. They were trying to understand what is it, what, 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 what is the difference between a workload that is sustainable and unsustainable? What, what is it where 
what is, how do we know where the level is where someone can keep going for two hours versus where they fly off the back of the treadmill after 20 minutes? And so, so this, this connection between physical limits and, and, and broader limits has been recognized for, you know, for at least a century. This is awesome. Uh, I appreciate the time. Um, I wrap up every single podcast and we're running out of time, but, um, is, is what book or person, um, and it doesn't matter how, it doesn't have to be in customer service or customer experience, but maybe what book or person who has influenced you the most in the past year. And that's the first question. And then the second question is if you could leave a note to all customer service professionals, it's going to hit everybody's desk Monday at 8am. What would it say? So for the book or person, I, I mean, I, the, the, the person that leaps to mind is uh, my, uh, the fender liner of my car fell off over the weekend, uh, which is the, the part on the inside of that kind of shields the, the engine from the, the tire. So I had to call my mechanic this morning and I was looking up the phone number and I ended up on the sort of the Google page. And I just noticed, I started reading the, the customer uh, feedback and testimonials and there were 51 pages of customer testimonials. Uh, and virtually all of them just saying exactly the same thing, which is my experience too, which is that, uh, these are the, the nicest and most professional and most courteous. Uh, it's a husband and wife team, uh, who run this sh- little shop. I've been going there for about eight, eight years and it just, uh, it just brought a smile to my face just to, to know that. And I was trying to put my finger on like, what is it that makes them the best mechanics I've ever dealt with? And they're just, they're nice. They're honest. They're straightforward. It's not, they're not like charging half as much as anyone else. They're, they're, they're charging what it charges. Sometimes they can't fix things. Um, they're, they're, but they're just straightforward. You absolutely know what you're getting with them and that they're, they're doing their best. And so they, they, they remind me of how I hope I'm dealing with other people when people are, when I'm serving other people, it's just, it doesn't, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be doing your best. Welcome to customer experience. Uh, you don't know that you're part of customer experience as a customer, but everybody is part of the experience of the journey. And you're either part of the ad employee experience or you're in part of the customer experience. And um, what you explained shows that uh, it's about consistency. It's about loyalty. It's about communication. And it's about delivering the experience that Alex expects um, and sometimes it's, it's even the good, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, just tell me the news like it is be, be transparent and honest. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell my friends. Yeah. And 50 pages of other people are doing the same thing. So yeah, exactly. that was really, really, uh, encouraging to me. And in terms of a note that I would leave, I guess <laughs> it would be a very simple note. Just like, thank you for dealing with humanity because we've all, We've all been in the you know the customer service line where behind the ass behind the unkind person. Let's say, let me censor myself there. Um, it's not an easy job, and I, I appreciate. Uh, I know the people I'm dealing with sometimes have have uh, hard challenges to deal with, and sometimes me as a customer, I have hard challenges to deal with. And so, uh, I appreciate people who give me understanding, and I hope that we as customers can give. Uh, customer service people understanding because uh, we, we all know it's not easy sometimes. It's awesome. Alex, thanks so much. Uh, everybody that is my listener who's listening to this episode, purchase this guy's book, Endure Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance. It's not just about running, but I'm sure there's plenty of runners who are listening to this as well. So uh, go buy this book and then buy the other ones that I mentioned, second and third. 
Um, uh, Alex, thanks so much for your time. Uh, for my listeners, go connect with Alex on on LinkedIn. I know he's there. Follow him on Science Sweats. Is that right? On on Twitter? Sweat Science on Twitter. That's the one. Twi- yeah, there you go. So there, there we go. Uh, so connect with him. And Alex, thanks so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Nick. Appreciate it. Hey, listeners, can you think of one person who would benefit from the information you learned today? If so, please consider sharing this episode with them. And last, if you would like to receive all the quotes and book recommendations from all my guests, you can go to pressonefornick.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Press One for Nick. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and share. Until next time, focus on your customers. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.